turn your occupation into a vocation. Now, I did a little research, and the American Institute of Stress website says numerous studies show that job stress is far and away the major source of stress for American adults. Ivanhoe Newswire said Americans spend one-third of their lives at work, but 80% of them are dissatisfied with their jobs. That means if you're like most Americans, you're going to spend 90,000 hours of your life at work, and if you hate your job, you're going to be spending a third of your life unhappy. So does the Bible have anything to say to us about how we can enjoy our jobs more if we hate them? Yes, it does. Now, there are some people who would argue that and say, well, no, 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 there's, there's really no way out of this misery because work is the result of the fall. That's not exactly true. Genesis 2.15 says that before the fall, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So work actually was not the result of the fall. Well, what difference did the fall make? Well, quite a big difference. In Genesis 3.17, God said, Cursed is the ground because of you. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So somebody said that originally man was a happy gardener, and now he became a, because of the curse, a tired farmer. Or originally man was a flower arranger, but the curse turned him into a weed warrior. So the fall didn't introduce work. What it did is it just turned it into blood, sweat, and tears. So what we want to know, does God have anything to say to us so that we can turn the pain a little bit back into pleasure? so that we can turn the, a, a miserable prison into a meaningful purpose? Well, certainly it does. We need to start by asking and answering a, a question or two. In this fallen world, for example, why does God want us to work? Well, in Acts 20, verse 34, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says, You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs, and the needs of my companions. And in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Number three, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So you'll notice that work supplies the needs of three different groups. First of all, my own needs. These hands have supplied my own needs. Second Thessalonians 2.10 says, if a man refuses to work, then he shouldn't eat. Secondly, as he says, the needs of my companions, that is, those to whom I am immediately responsible for. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And of course, the third group is, he says, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. So work after the fall is designed by God to ease the curse somewhat and to be a blessing to different groups of people. Now, you're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 18, Solomon, who penned Ecclesiastes, said, If a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. <laughs> so you can see that a refusal to work only makes the curse worse.
Well, I showed you by that this kind of hard work we must help. So consequently, hard work is, is what God wants for his people. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, Paul says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching that you receive from us. For you yourselves know you ought to follow our example. What is that? We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to you. Okay, so the first step in turning your workstation into a happy vocation is you've got to realize that by work, you turn yourself from being a burden to society to being a blessing to the world. Just to know that is, is a helpful thought. So we, let's ask the ultimate question, was Jesus a hard worker? Probably know the answer to that. John 5, 17, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Uh, in John chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus said, as long as it is day, we must work the works of him who sent me. The night comes when no man can work. I think it's important to point out that Jesus was not a workaholic in the sense that all he ever did was work and he never took a break. Um, you find him from time to time saying to his disciples what he said in Mark 6.31, which is, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Uh, Luke 5.16 says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. But, but from what he says, you can see that he was very much a hard worker. Uh, as he said to his parents right at the outset, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And you see, that really is the key. That's the key that will we'll hopefully unlock a lot of thought as we address other scriptures. Because whether Jesus was spending years at the workbench or whether he was preaching in the ministry, he was always about his father's business. That's the way he saw it. Now, this was something that occurred because it was a driving passion for him. John 4.32, Jesus said to his disciples, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And then his disciples said to him, could somebody have possibly brought him some food? And he says, my meat, meaning my passion, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So you can see when you go to a job, but you go there with the attitude, I'm going there to do the will of the Father who sent me, your work can start to become a passion too. In John chapter 2, verse 17, when they saw Jesus driving out the money changes from the temple, it says that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume him. Remember on one occasion, he, he, he had been working so hard, he fell asleep in a little boat in the middle of a storm. Uh, at the end of his life, in John 17, verse 4, he says to his father, what all of us need to be able to say at the end of our life, I have brought you glory on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Well, that brings us to Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes talks a lot about work. In fact, 
probably a lot more than you would think. Uh, Fourteen times, mostly in the first few chapters, it mentions the word work. Ten times the word labor, nine times the word toil. That means Ecclesiastes talks about your job 33 times. Well, so what is the basic message in Ecclesiastes regarding your workplace? And it's this. Your workplace must become the place where you serve Christ, and that's the way you think about it, or you're going to spend much of your life miserable. If you work 40 hours a week, and some work a lot harder than that, uh, from 18 to 65, you're going to spend 98,000 hours at work. Well, at some point, God is going to call those hours to account. Has to be. Jesus said, after all, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, and for a third of your life, your work is your world. So your job is where God has called you largely to serve him. You have to think that way if you're going to turn your grinding workstation into a meaningful vocation. Uh, Mark 13, 34 says the kingdom of God is like a man going away. Jesus is referring to himself going to heaven, but he's going to come back soon. And he says he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task. So each one of us, if you're a believer, every day is on assignment. Okay, but where, where am I supposed to do my assigned task? 1 Corinthians 7, 17 says, Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So right now, your place in life is where you have been assigned. It's where God has called you to. And in 1 Corinthians 7, 23 and 24, Paul says something very interesting. He says, you're bought with a price. So, so don't become slaves of men. Brothers, each man is responsible to God. And he, sh- he should remain in the situation that God has called him to. Which is kind of another way of saying, if you don't see your occupation as to where God has called you to, you're just going to be a slave of men. You're just going to be a slave to some boss. You, you want to understand the, the marvelous purpose for why you're there. You know, one of the things that Martin Luther repeatedly said that he hated was this division between the laity and the clergy. This idea that priests and nuns and monks were engaged in holier work than housewives and farmers. He couldn't stand that. Uh, William Tyndale thought exactly the same way, and he wrote, if we look externally... There is a difference between the washing of dishes and the preaching of the word of God. But as far as pleasing God, there is no difference at all. The biblical view of work is that there is no difference when done to the honor of the Lord between preaching and the washing of dishes. Well, that's a truth that is rather buttressed when you consider the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth on a mission, spent three years as a preacher and about 20 years as a, as a woodworker. Notice that Ecclesiastes begins with, and you're going to stay in 
Ecclesiastes 1. I'm going to whip to number 2 here. But, but he, he really begins with, with Solomon's whole view of work if you left God out of your thoughts. He's going to tell you, if your job is just a job, this is the way it's going to be for you. Well, he said, let me tell you how it was for me. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says, so I hated life. <laughs> I hated life because the work that is done, of all the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it was just meaningless. It was a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I had to toiled for under the sun. Uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. So if, if my occupation or your occupation is not your vocation, that is, you don't see it as the place that God has called you to, to represent him, then like Solomon, you're gonna, your heart is going to begin to despair and you'll eventually get to the point where you may even hate life. Why exactly will that be the case? Because if your work, Solomon said, is nothing more than a job, then your life is going to seem meaningless. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does a man gain from all his labor which he toils for under the sun? Then he repeats himself in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. He's talking about the time when he was not following God. And in two verses, <laughs> to describe what he thought of work, he said five times he uses the word meaningless. So look, if one-third of your life is spent on a job, and it's nothing more than a job because you have no savior to serve there, no, no savior to plug into. Solomon says, you're going to be saying meaningless, meaningless as well, along with me. You know, Ernest Hemingway was very successful in his work as a writer, internationally successful in his work as a writer. And yet, shortly before he ended his life with a shotgun, he wrote, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there is no current to plug into. You see, if, if the only person that you can look to to please is your employer, because that's as far as you think, your batteries are soon going to be dead as well. And the light uh, uh, of joy in your countenance will fade away. Interesting, actually, that uh, Psalm 34, verse 5 says, whereas if you look to Jesus, your face will be radiant. So your life will seem meaningless, and your life, Solomon says, will be monotonous if you don't see your job as a place where God has assigned you. You don't see it as your assignment. Look at verse 5. It'd be monotonous. The sun rises, the sun. He's describing your life if you, as you go to work without a concept of God. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hurries back to where it rises. You know, I looked up the Hebrew for that, and you know what it says? The sun returns exhausted to its place. Does that sound like a day at the office? The work blows to the south and turns to the north, and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. 
Look at verse 9. What has been will be again. What has done, been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. So when you don't know that at work, I, I'm, a, I'm in a huge part of God's amazing purpose, he said, you, you, you're just going to be on a merry-go-round. That, that's the way you're going to view your life. You'll, you'll be on a treadwheel. You'll, you'll ever be running, but you'll, you'll, you'll never feel there's any forward progress. I, I bumped into the, this horrible uh, last words of a, of a cartoonist named Ralph Barton. And uh, he was very successful, very much in demand, but he also took his life. And he left a note which included these words, I'm fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours a day. Exactly what Solomon says your life will be like. Totally monotonous, even if you're doing cartoons. You know, somebody said you, you could win the rat race, but you're still a rat. Um, so your job will seem meaningless, your life will be monotonous, and your life, Solomon says, will be mundane, totally unfulfilling. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor its ear, its fill of hearing. He's just saying, you see, it's never, it's never going to be able to fulfill you. You know, Business Week did a, a very funny study. They did a study to find out the number one answer that people gave to the question, how are you? Guess what it is? I'm tired. <laughs> you know what that means? My life is mundane and largely unfulfilling. Uh, I was reading that the average household, I mean, the average American watches TV for six hours and 55 minutes a day. And the average household has three remotes. <laughs> and they switch the channels some 50,000 times a year. Well, apparently, Hollywood can't even keep you interested. <laughs> We're so bored with the programs, we just got to keep switching and switching and switching, uh, as I condemn myself before my wife. Um, so your job, he says, will be mundane. and that Your life would also seem mediocre. Insignificant. Look at verse 11. There's no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Your, your whole life you're going to be a nobody. Do you know how many people feel that their whole life is a nobody? I'm just a nobody. Uh, William Durant, he, he wrote, to give life meaning, you've got to have a purpose higher than yourself. Uh, otherwise, you're just a nobody. And interestingly enough, speaking of which, I happen to be reading about Frank Wimproy, who was one of God's nobodies. Uh, we don't know much about him, but we just know that at work, he took the time to listen to the griefs of a young man called Will, and he led him to the Lord. And Will grew up and became Dr. Will Sangster, and God used him to bring thousands of people to Christ. Your job would be meaningless, monotonous, a mundane, unfulfilling, mediocre, and may I add, or may Solomon add, unmanageable. Verse 15. Is he still sticking with his theme? He can't straighten out what is crooked and what is lacking cannot be counted. Your life would be out of your control. Um, by the way, 
the feeling of lack of control at work is one of the biggest stress factors leading to heart attacks according to the US National Library of Medicine. So there. Well, this is all very depressing. Uh, how do I turn then my vocation in, uh, my occupation into a vocation? Well, let's look at what we've already just observed from Solomon. You gotta know that God expects you to work. Don't feel hard done by. He expects you to work. Work is designed to ease the curse, not just for you, but for other people. Work turns you from being a burden to society to being a blessing to the world. And, and you've got to see your present job, whether you particularly like it or not, or whether it's fraught with difficulties, is, is, is where God has assigned you. You're on mission. So, satisfaction, as Solomon changes his tone and his direction of thought, is found in living, basically, to please God at work. It's just a, just a different mindset. In chapter 2, verse 24, he, he, Solomon changes and he says, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work, this too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? But to the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and what? Happiness. To the, to the person who goes to work with the goal of pleasing God while you're there, not just pleasing your employer, has discovered the key to supernatural happiness in a place that might not be offering you any. Ephesians 6, verse 5 and 7 says, Servants, obey your earthly masters, that's your bosses, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. But serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. You know, this is such an important truth the, the New Testament is just repeatedly saying it. It's full of scriptures admonishing us to do this. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. It is the Lord Christ that you are serving. In fact, Paul even goes so far in Galatians 1.10 to say, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or, or, or am I trying to please men? Because if I was trying to please men, I wouldn't even be a servant of God. They're not even compatible. And here's our verse, Ecclesiastes 2.26. To the man who pleases him, goes to work to please Christ, God gives him wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. That'll turn your meaningless occupation into a purposeful vocation. So you look for opportunities to please God. How can I please you, God? He gives us two ways, Solomon does. Look for opportunities in the day to speak God's grace to people. Really? You see, later in, 
in Ecclesiastes 10, 12, he says words as he, he's shifted his whole topic and how not to live a meaningless life. Words from a wise man's mouth are gracious, but a fool is consumed by his own lips. In fact, 12 times the book of Ecclesiastes, in the context of what we've been talking about, says you've got to watch your words. Words from a wise man's mouth are gracious. Interesting that in Psalm 45, verse 2, we read a prophecy about the Messiah. And it said, you are the most excellent of men, and your lips have been anointed with grace. Luke 4.22 confirms this, saying, all spoke well of Jesus when are amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Proverbs 18.4, a person's words can be life-giving water. Words of true wisdom are as refreshing as a bubbling brook. So, so when you look for opportunities to speak God's grace to people who need it, you turn a lifeless occupation into a life-giving vocation. So look for opportunities to please God. How do we do that? What? It's what you say and it's what you do. Look for opportunities to speak grace and to serve God. You know, if God has sovereignly seen to it that you are where you are, <laughs> you might not like it, but where you are right now, uh, that is that, you know, you belong to him and you're, you're completely in his hands. You've, you've got to every day just try to discern, what's my purpose here today, Lord? How do I represent you? What do you want me to do? In chapter 9, verse 1, he says, So I reflected on all of this, and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. I concluded that the righteous are always on an assignment. And then he says in chapter 9, verse 10, So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Be a good worker. Um, now, it's funny because, you know, how people will say, yes, okay, Paul, I kind of got that message. I heard this sermon like this years ago. But, you know, I've been working at this business for 20 years, and I don't see that my life has made any difference. It's funny how uh, Solomon even covers that. Because in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, With God, everything, to everything there's a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. And, and then in, John, in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says, God makes everything beautiful in his time. So you, you cannot possibly evaluate the difference that God is making through you. Uh, but what you can be sure is, in time, God is going to accomplish a lot more than you think through your faithfulness. So, by way of summary, when you go to work, or when you step into another day of retirement, <laughs> your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to look for opportunities to please God. How? Opportunities to speak a word of grace and truth to somebody. Opportunities to serve God by serving someone else. In other words, be righteous. Ah, but Solomon has something to say about that too. Because in chapter 7, verse 16, if you can believe it, he says, don't be over-righteous. Neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Only God could get away with saying that. Don't be overrighteous. What's he talking about? He said, you, be, you become a Bible-thumping religious freak, and you're going to be of no use to God. 
By the way, it'll be no use to an employer either. You'll probably lose your job because that's not why you're hired. That's, that's not honourable. Well, what do I be like then? Be like Jesus. In Matthew eleven nineteen, it's he's described as a friend of sinners. In Luke fifteen one, it says even the tax collectors and the sinners they gathered around to hear him. Uh, Luke nineteen, while others marvel, saying, "This man welcomes sinners and eats with them," he's gone to the house of a sinner. So he was approachable. At work, his your arms are to be open to the worst of the worst. Who knows? whether God's grace might change their lives. So if Jesus is like that, we've got to go and do likewise. Because when a young person sets out on his career seeking to understand his job as his calling and his assignment or her assignment, and it's a place to please God, speak God's grace, serve God, they transform one-third of their lives from a dull occupation and a burden to society to a, to a bright vocation and a blessing to the world. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, approach your table, we think of the words, just as I am without one plea but that your blood was shed for me. And uh, I think of the disciples right now who uh, were about to abandon you and deny you. And yet in Luke 22, you said to them, you are the ones who have stood by me in my trial. It's crazy how Because of your grace, you don't look at that 98% of us that's rotten, but you extol the 2% where your work in our lives is visible. Bless your holy name. And so, just as we are, we come to your table. And thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.